Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Media Sandwich. I am Kyle Martinak, and I'm trying something new. Uh, we're going for a new kind of format uh, for the show. This show's gone through a bunch of different attempts at changing the format, so I don't think it's too big of a deal. Uh, but it's it's uh, just going to be me skimming some headlines. I've got some lovely coffee with me, and uh, we're going to use that to fuel uh, some speculation, some commentary on what's going on in a couple different facets of the media that we sandwich together here. Uh, don't worry, Chris and Dan will be back. It's just uh, this is an easier thing to put out on a more regular basis so that folks can uh, engage with our ideas a little bit more and uh, check out our stuff a little bit more. So uh, let's peruse some headlines and we'll start with uh, video game news, the, the thing that I know the least about. But that's okay, because we're talking about a video game that I do have a pretty good background on. Grand Theft Auto 6. Apparently it does exist. It is officially happening. We all knew that it was happening, but it's comforting to hear Rockstar say, this is a thing that does exist. And they claim that it's <laughs> that they've been working on it since, like, 2014. I don't know if I buy that. I mean, considering the amount of time that went into Red Dead Redemption 2... The amount of resources that have gone into GTA Online to the point where they killed Red Dead Online completely. I don't know if I buy that, but anyway, GTA 6 is a thing, and we're starting to get some leaks, or maybe they're not leaks, maybe they're just like tidbits that are coming out of the, the gate from them that uh, sound good, and some that sound kind of troubling for those of us who don't live our lives in a perpetual online gaming atmosphere, but... Let's start with the good stuff. Good stuff, uh, apparently GTA 6 is going to have a Latina female protagonist, supposedly uh, half of a Bonnie and Clyde storyline. I think that sounds cool. Uh, that's one thing that these games have been missing, is kind of more emotional uh, plot lines like that, and definitely never played as a female character before, so I think that's cool. Uh, also cool is we are returning to Vice City. We all kind of suspected that. Uh, Vice City and the surrounding areas was what the tidbit uh, informed us. And that's cool, too. Uh, just the same way that GTA V was not just Los Santos, but the entire surrounding countryside. If I had to guess, that means we're going to get, you know, it's Vice City, so we'll get the urban Miami landscape, but also... Maybe some alligator-infested swamplands, some kind of bayou fishing towns, the definitely probably the rich people island with all of the big mansions and whatnot. Uh, I think it was called Star Island in the original Vice City game. Uh, maybe even, this is my good idea for this, maybe even a kind of Rockstar-branded take on the Florida Keys or the Bahamas so that you can, like, escape the law and head down there where it's, like, non-extraditious kind of thing? I don't know. That's my idea. Uh, what else? Uh, large map. Uh, uh, large map, which goes without saying. With, uh, this is what the tidbit said, was way more interiors than GTA V. And that's terrific. I think that's one of the few problems that we had with GTA V was very few buildings that you could enter. That's kind of the problem with every open world sandbox game these days. Big, wide, open map, not a whole lot to do in it, you know, especially if you're not somebody who likes to hunt 
digital animals over and over and over again. That's always the thing that you can do is hunt. Uh, these leaks or tidbits also suggested that the map, which will be plenty big, I'm sure, uh, will be expanded to more cities and locations in the future after launch. Now that sounds, uh, sounds good on the surface, but it also sounds a little troubling, because that sounds a lot like GTA Online rather than a single-player standalone situation. Are, are those locations going to be paid DLC either way? Yeah, I mean, most likely. It, that's just not avoidable these days. They want your money. They want your money for every little bit that they give you, and I, I'm fine with that, I guess. As long as, if I'm paying money, it better come with new missions and content for those uh, map locations that I can play in single-player. Because there are some of us who love a GTA game, but can't stand other GTA players, because a lot of them suck. Uh, I loved Red Dead Redemption 2, and I really love GTA 5 uh, as single-player experiences. There were tremendous pieces of storytelling, uh, but both online experiences were dumpster fires for me right out the gate, so I didn't, I didn't get very far in either of them. And if these new locations are exclusive to the MMO format, uh, you can keep them. And honestly, if I'm going to have to sign up for another subscription model just to access them, you can really keep them because you're getting enough of my money, I think. Uh, look, the Rockstar games are big, they're really ambitious in scale and, and uh, texture, but, you know, sell me a game, I'll buy it. Sell me a, you know, ongoing subscription-based experience, and I might sign up for it if it's a good enough thing. You can't sell me both. That's against the rules, okay? But... You know, the real news story surrounding GTA 6 uh, has been how woke it's going. GTA is going woke. Whoa! What a crock of shit. Um, <laughs> it's, GTA going woke is just a ridiculous idea right, right, you know, off the dome. First of all, I want to ban the word woke from everyone's vocabulary just for like five years. I want to see a better explanation of what everyone means by that word because if we're talking about a video game series where you can murk the living hell out of like an endless stream of people while tossing around the most juvenile of profanity uh and uh and grenades you can toss those around too uh and then you can go to a strip club and look at digital boobs yeah no that's that's not woke is not the word for that um the word has lost all meaning i think um uh, <laughs> Uh, I assume that GTA is now being labeled woke just because, just because lots of totally normal fellas cannot handle playing a female character, which is pretty weird considering, I mean, this is the video game industry, it's not a new thing. Here's, uh, here's my big question. Where was this giant controversy about a female character uh, being quote-unquote forced upon you? First of all, nothing's forced upon you. You don't got to buy the game. You don't got to play the game. But, yeah, where, where was this giant controversy when Gears of War added a female protagonist? Where was this controversy when Samus of the Metroid series was revealed to be a g g g, -g girl uh, Why wasn't Tomb Raider lambasted for being woke? Well... Well, it's because the shit gibbons who now fling this word around like so much feces, they, they didn't hear that word until just a little bit ago, and they're still learning how to use it as a, as a 
a cure-all for whatever it is they might have a problem with in their tiny brains. But before that, they actually had to play a video game before getting mad at it, you know? What a concept. Uh, that was a lot of vitriol, sorry about that. Um, anywho, uh, let's move on to something nice, something more fun. Uh, comic books. Comic-Con just happened, even though it has very little to do with comic books anymore. Uh, but Comic-Con reminds me of comic books, and uh, there was a pretty cool announcement. DC Comics is doing something kind of fun for those of us who started reading comic books in the early to mid-90s. A Death of Superman 30th Anniversary Special. So gather around, kids. Here's a little comic book history for you. 30 years ago, a bemulleted Superman died fighting Doomsday, and it was a really big deal for DC, uh, storytelling-wise. It didn't really... It didn't really translate into the modern revamping of the classic Superman character as well as they had hoped. If you remember, uh, Tim, the Tim Burton, Nicolas Cage, uh, Kevin Smith Superman movie was supposed to adapt this story to the big screen, and it was supposed to be a real big coming out and modernization of the character, and uh, it famously never happened. We eventually got the story of Superman fighting Doomsday and dying in those uh, Zack Snyder movies, but it felt really obligatory, you know, kind of like Sam Raimi doing Venom in Spider-Man 3. Like, I guess we'll put this in there because the fans expect it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the comic books, it was a big deal. The suit changed for a bit, and then it changed back pretty quickly. Uh, there were other characters that were going to take up the mantle of Superman for a little bit, and it didn't really stick. And at the time, though, it was supposed to be this big monumental event in the comics, like as big as some of the deaths or at least the repercussions of the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, like the death of Supergirl or the death of Barry Allen's Flash. And Barry Allen stayed dead in the comic books for like 20 years, so that was a big deal. But really, the death of Superman is more along the lines of like the death of Robin in Batman A Death in the Family. Not really, like, world-changing, but certainly something that rattled the comic book uh, fanscape. It is a big pivot point for the character and for the DC Universe in ways, but for me at least, it was more like just a signal that for the rest of my life, they, they can kill off any character. If they can kill off Superman, they can kill off any comic book character ever. But, but, and that's a heavy but, that also means that no matter what character we're talking about, if they're ever killed off, they'll likely be alive again within a year, maybe two tops. And sure enough, uh, like 2006, 2007, they kill off Captain America at the end of Civil War, and he stays dead for about a year. And then you realize, oh no, he's not dead, he's just been trapped in time or something. And then only, like, a year or two later, like, 2009, I think, Batman was killed off at the end of Final Crisis and stayed dead for about a year. And then you realized he's not dead. He's just trapped in time. Huh. Strange. Uh, but, yeah, that's the real legacy of this Death of Superman arc for me. But, anyway, DC thinks it's a good idea, and they brought back many creators from the 1992 era of Superman and Superman-adjacent books to do a one-shot issue consisting of four stories, and the theme of these stories seems to be Superman's fight with Doomsday and his death, but from the perspective of other characters. So there's, uh, it's, it's, in spots it's a really good idea. There's a good 
uh, story with a blend of modern comic book stuff with the classic story, um, where John Kent, Clark's son, uh, who's a very big character in the current day Superman books, learns about that one time his dad totally died for a little bit. And then there's a, a story of Ma and Pa Kent uh, watching their son fight and die on live TV. That sounds kind of heartbreaking. And then the other two are a look at the big moment from uh, other heroes' points of view, namely John Henry Irons and The Guardians, who I don't know too much about either of those, but sounds kind of cool. You know, The Guardians, if I remember right, kind of had to pick up the slack to defend the world when Superman was dead for a bit. Uh, it's a big, supersized issue, so it retails for eleven ninety nine at your local comic book shop when it releases on November 8th. My big question is, uh, is this supersized issue going to be sold in one of those fancy poly bags like the original was? You ever see those nowadays? I don't think they do the, the poly bags anymore. Uh, I know that the foil variant covers kind of went out uh, went out of style very quickly after they introduced them back in like the late 90s, early aughts. But the poly bags I kind of liked, you know? It, it really, when you see a comic book sealed in a plastic bag with its own design on it, it kind of makes you go like, holy cow, this must be a really important and valuable $3 funny book. Uh, but I could never commit to opening the poly bag because that kills the mint condition of your book instantly. Every once in a while, if you're at a comic book show, you can scour the, the long boxes and you'll find something that's still sealed in a poly bag and... It's kind of faded. It doesn't really... Those poly bags were not meant to hold up against, like, 30 years of sitting in storage, but I don't know. I thought they were a fun idea. I think I might have a Guardians of the Galaxy from the 90s that's in a poly bag for no reason at all. But, hey, speaking of comic book shows and uh, diving through the long boxes, as I said before, Comic-Con is not about comic books at all anymore. It's about the movie industry more than anything. And at this Comic-Con last, uh, this last week or so, the Marvel Cinematic Universe had a bunch of news to share with us, so we'll go over that really fast. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for better or for worse, is kind of turning into the movie industry's version of, like, the popular crowd in high school. You know, like, they've got their own table over there, and you know, some people really want to be a part of that group, other people just kind of make fun of that group, uh... There are people out on the smokers' patio who are making indie movies. Uh, those, some of you might be too young to know what a smoker patio is. That's okay. Don't even worry about it. Not a, not a big deal anymore. But uh, <laughs> with the big Comic-Con announcement of Phase 5 and Phase 6 from the MCU and Kevin Feige, the hunt is on for the next Varsity squad of directors. They've got most of them figured out, actually. Uh, they have to do this because the Russo brothers are busy building their own cinematic universe over on Netflix. <laughs> oh boy. Anybody see The Gray Man? What a waste of 200 million bucks that was. Uh, read my full review on that on, uh, on the website or on my letterbox because I gave that one a paddling. Uh, anyways, we found out that the Waka uh, Wakanda Forever is in fact a real movie that exists, and it's coming in November, courtesy of Ryan Coogler directing again. Uh, I love Ryan Coogler, he's like three for three at this point, uh, really, really dig the guy. Uh, really weird that there's been very little ramp up towards this movie, not a lot of advertising, but I think the trailer looked pretty good. 
I'm liking that it appears that there's no clear-cut new replacement for Black Panther, but instead more of like a collective team-up by all of his supporting characters, which is why the title card has Black Panther really, really small, and then Wakanda Forever in really big font. Uh, that's good choices, I think. Good narrative choices. And hey, and hey, I owe Chris Pranger a sandwich because indeed they are finally bringing in Namor and the rest of his underwater realm. Is it Namor or Namor? I never get that. That's like data and data for me. Root and route. Uh, I always say data because there is a character named data and it's definitively pronounced data. Uh, so I guess I should figure that out with Namor or Namor. But anyway, between that being the uh, antagonist in Wakanda Forever and then Avatar 2 coming out this holiday season, we're going to have a, a month or two at the movies. It's going to feel very uh, wet, very wet. Anyways, uh, after that, the next Marvel movie on the docket is The Marvels, set for summer 2023 and directed by Nia DaCosta. Uh, who directed last year's Candyman, among other things. And, in fact, she is younger than me. We've reached that point. A Marvel movie will be directed by somebody younger than me. Holy crap. Uh, interesting interesting person to grab to direct this movie, because uh, we know it's going to be a team-up featuring Brie Larson's Captain Marvel, Iman Vellani's Ms. Marvel, and Tayona Paris as uh, Monica Rambo, a.k.a. Spectrum. I don't know if they ever ended up calling her Spectrum by the end of WandaVision, did they? But, I don't know. I wonder if this movie and the ending implications of the Ms. Marvel season... Uh, spoilers, 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 spoilers. Spoilers for Ms. Marvel's last, like, 10, 15 seconds. Uh, where I wonder if this movie is going to be our way into bringing other Marvel characters into the MCU for the first time because we find out that in the comic books Ms. Marvel is an inhuman and the MCU they were using the word inhuman because they couldn't use the word mutant because they didn't have the rights to use mutants or the X-Men that was all at Fox so they were kind of pushing like okay we'll replace that with inhuman but the TV show like really tanked badly uh, they did an Inhumans arc on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and then they kind of just kind of threw it out the window. Uh, but they're kind of course-correcting by making Ms. Marvel a mutant instead of an Inhuman. They used the word mutant on purpose. So I think this might be our way of bringing in the X-Men. Who knows? Uh, Kevin Feige knows, but I don't. Uh, after that one, in November of 2023, we get a Blade movie. Sweet! I love Blade. Uh, this one's going to be directed by Bassam Tariq, who uh, is a Pakistani filmmaker. Uh, his biggest credit is a documentary about street kids in Pakistan. Uh, the movie's called These Birds Walk. And I think it's very cool that they're bringing in folks from different genres, uh, different areas of film. You know, uh, Nia DaCosta just did a horror movie, and they're bringing her in to do the Marvels. And then this guy, you know, did a did a kind of heartbreaking documentary about uh, runaway children. So that's certainly widening the cultural perspectives and the filmmaking sensibilities behind these big popcorn movies. I think that's a good idea on paper. Here's hoping that he kind of brings his expertise to the Blade story in form of 
maybe a little more time spent on the character growing up on the streets and learning how to survive. That'd be cool. That's an area of Blade we've never really seen before. I just... I really hope this isn't the latest evolution of my big problem with comic book movies in general, is the, the instinct of the studio to hire a young filmmaker with not a lot of experience with giant blockbusters. You know, someone that they can foster into an A-list director, sure, but also kind of push around, you know, kind of installing Kevin Feige as a shadow director of sorts. And hey, listen... The MCU is more like a television program at this point in, in, in this particular way with, you know, directors show up to direct episodes, if you will, but they're kind of guests to, to the set. They're, they're there for, you know, to provide a little bit of flavor or a, a new concept or vision for something specific, but they leave most of the meat and potatoes technical stuff to... You know, the the uh, departmental directors who've been doing it for 10 years on these movies. And certainly, everything goes back to Feige, who's kind of the showrunner or series creator. So he's got final word on most things. So, I don't know. Um, moving on. Uh, next movie on the MCU docket is Captain America, colon, New World Order. Uh, that's going to be directed by Julius Ona. I hope I'm pronouncing all these names correctly, by the way. Uh, I, I know Nia DaCosta's name because of Candyman, but I don't know the others all that well, so I hope I'm pronouncing these right. But Julius Ona will be directing Captain America 4, and that's going to be releasing May of 2024. Now, Ona, if you don't recognize his name, directed a very cool, uh, very dark movie called Loose, that's, uh, if you haven't seen Loose, it's a very emotional drama based on a play about a young, uh, young man who was adopted after being a uh, child soldier, and he has problems kind of acclimating to his new life, and, uh, you know, things are kind of troubling for his, his new parents and for his, uh, teachers and counselors, so it's, uh, it's pretty heavy, it's very heavy and emotional, so that's one thing that, I don't know, it doesn't fit the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, very well. But uh, the other thing that Ona has directed is the Cloverfield Paradox. You remember that one? Uh, that's the wonderful marketing uh, gimmick that Netflix did during the Super Bowl. During the halftime of the Super Bowl, they dropped a trailer for this movie that we had never heard of. And they were like, hey, yeah, it's a new Cloverfield movie. With the giant monster, you remember Cloverfield? We did another one, and it's going to be on Netflix. And when's it going to be on Netflix? Right now. You can watch it right after the game, or you can shut off this game and watch the movie instead. It's going to be great. Uh, excellent marketing uh, moment from Netflix. Now, the movie itself, not as well remembered, uh, but certainly has a few good ideas in it and some fun visuals. I remember... If you've seen the movie, you'll know what I mean when I say the arm. The arm or the person in the wall panels. Or uh, my favorite thing was the 3D printed gun. I thought that was really cool. Uh, so really, it's not, it's not the worst movie in the world. The fault of the movie lies in whoever decided to duct tape the Cloverfield uh, saga onto this completely unrelated movie. And I see how Ona, uh, as a director, is going to be able to handle a lot of the necessary topics that are likely going to cause a ruckus online when the 
the general white audiences are confronted with a definitive, yes, Sam Wilson is in fact Captain America, you whiny bastards. Because that turned into a thing online just like a week or two ago where suddenly people were like, hey, Sam Wilson's not my Captain America. You know, give me only Steve Rogers, Chris Evans. That's the only Captain America I recognize. And it's like, well... <laughs> Too bad, you whiny jagoffs. Uh, he's done being Captain America, and I don't know if you knew this, but over a year ago, we established Sam Wilson is Captain America now. With no asterisk next to his name, he's Captain America. So the next Captain America movie will be Sam Wilson in the red, white, and blue with wings like an eagle. So that works, you know? I think that's cool. I liked, I liked the transition, even if the show Falcon and the Winter Soldier wasn't terrific. I liked the the final result of Sam Wilson, Captain America being premiered in that. I thought that they pulled it off really well, but a lot of people didn't, and gee, I wonder why. So, yeah, I think that's going to be a topic of the new movie, at least in part. Uh, the subtitle New World Order certainly sounds like he might need to be fighting some, some white supremacists or something like that, which might be a little heavy for MCU, but... I wouldn't mind it at all. I'd like to watch Captain America punch racists in their turkey necks. That'd, that'd be nice. That'd be fun. Uh, after that one, uh, Jake Schreier will direct a team-up to close out Phase 5. So all of those that I've just mentioned are all Phase 5 movies. Uh, after, uh, Jake Schreier will direct a team-up of The Thunderbolts, which will hit July 2024. That seems really, really soon for this to be, like, the fourth movie to come out, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> I don't know a whole bunch about the Thunderbolts. I do know that they were basically, in the comic books, they were kind of like the Dark Avengers for a bit, with characters like Taskmaster being a part of them. But the new comics are kind of depicting them less as dark and more like a new, kind of scrappier, almost like a JV team. Like, they're the JV Avengers more than anything. So this uh, might be the payoff to all that uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus Contessa character recruiting folks during Phase 4. So we're talking U.S. Agent, uh, Yelena as the new Black Widow, maybe America Chavez from Multiverse of Madness, maybe Kate Bishop as a new Hawkeye. Uh, basically all the new characters that we've been introduced to since Endgame. Uh, and coincidentally, all of those actors' contracts are a lot cheaper than the real Avengers, right? Uh, which makes sense from a monetary standpoint. Kind of makes sense from a storytelling standpoint, too, because most of the original Avengers are donezo from a storytelling point of view as well. Um, Jake Schreier, the director that I mentioned, uh, he is the director of the John Green adaptation, Paper Towns, if anybody remembers that book or that movie uh you know teenagers in love somebody probably has cancer that's you know it's john green so that's what that is kind of kind of a weird again not really linked up to the mcu very well with that but he also directed a charming little indie that i really loved called Ro robot and frank uh that's frank langella and a cute little robot are uh planning a heist so that's a cool little indie movie that costs almost nothing. I highly recommend that one. It's on a streaming service somewhere for you, I guarantee it. But yet again, uh, this seems like a directing choice built largely off the idea of like, hey, this person has made two films total, and both of which are far smaller in scale 
and complexity than this quarter billion dollar tentpole that we're about to hand them. So let's scout this person, pay them way less than a more established director, and and you get to push them around a little bit too with studio notes and you know Kevin Feige breathing down their necks. Uh, it it works though. Sometimes sometimes it doesn't work as well as they'd like. You get a Josh Trank situation with the Fantastic Four that was a bit of a fiasco. Or a more established director like Edgar Wright or Patty Jenkins will decide, you know, it ain't worth dealing with the studio and all of their crap, so they split. But, I don't know, I'm, I'm just really not comfortable with this pipeline of indie directors being thrust into this mass market junk this way. I, I think it stinks. I think it stinks for their careers, because a lot of them never go on to do anything big after these. It's either they stick with the Marvel stuff or they disappear into the ether, and I don't want some of these people to disappear into the ether. But I also, I like the Marvel movies still, so I don't know. I I don't know. We'll reserve judgment. Uh, that's phase five. So phase six, uh, phase six, they, they did have John Watts, the director of the Spider-Man Home trilogy. Uh, they had him tap to do a Fantastic Four movie, but that fell through. Uh, he decided to bounce from that, so... They're looking for someone right now to direct that, and they better hurry their asses up because that movie's already slated for November of 2024. <laughs> they have a release date, but they don't have a director. How reassuring. I hope they have a script. Because last time I heard about a superhero movie with a release date and no script, that turned out to not work out very well. Um, but the big, big thing that grabbed all the headlines from Comic-Con is that Destin Daniel Cretton who directed Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, just got announced as the director of The Avengers, colon, The Kang Dynasty, which is going to be one of two Avengers movies set to close out Phase 6 at some point in 2025. The other one, apparently, is going to be The Avengers, colon, Secret Wars, possibly, which sounds like fun. I like Secret Wars. So, yeah, they, they give the Avengers to someone they trust, someone who's a known quantity, who's already made them a hit. And Shang-Chi was a good movie, I thought. Uh, it was possibly, kind of in my opinion, the last Marvel movie to have the proper cinematic scale and tone and, and I don't know, feelings to it that felt, it felt the most like the pre-Endgame stuff of anything in uh, Phase 4 to me. It might just be that it had the benefit of being in between the Black Widow movie, which feels strangely disconnected from everything else, and uh, the Eternals, which feels strangely disconnected from everything else. So, I don't know. I dug Shang-Chi, and I like this this director. I think he'll make a fun Avengers movie. Ooh, that was a whole lot of MCU talk. I'm sorry about that. Let's move on to uh, television, because uh, July is over with. It's August now, and that means blockbuster movie season is over, and uh, television season is starting in earnest. So we have a big bag of television shows to whet your appetite. Uh, the big headline grabbers this month are inevitably going to be... I know I said we were done with Marvel talk, but Marvel's She-Hulk Attorney at Law premieres on August 17th, and, you know, I have different expectations for the shows on Disney Plus than I do for the movies. I think that's the healthiest way of going in. Ms. Marvel caught a lot of crap from people who were like, this feels like a Nickelodeon show or a Disney Channel show, and it's like, yeah, that's the idea. It's aimed at, at younger audiences. 
it's about a teenage girl. It's not all of these things are aimed at 35 year old film nerds on Twitter. So that's fine. Don't watch the shows. You don't have to, you don't have to watch any of it, but you can get away with not watching the shows and just watch the movies and you'll be fine, honestly. But Ms. Marvel, I thought was great. Um, also, uh, another cool Marvel show on the horizon. We heard that Daredevil's returning to the to the MCU via a show called Daredevil: Born Again. I really hope that if if they're bringing uh, the Charlie Cox Daredevil and the Vincent D'Onofrio uh, Kingpin, who who we saw in Hawkeye, if they're bringing them back in their own show, please, 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 Marvel, do me a solid and. Distance yourself from the Frank Miller Daredevil. I know that Frank Miller's version of Daredevil is kind of the definitive one, but look, the MCU is a little too sunny for that stuff. That's why the Netflix shows didn't quite fit the way they wanted them to. They don't have the same tone. And I'm always the guy advo advocating for more flavors and more different, you know, uh, genres, but... If you're going to reboot Daredevil in the MCU, do a Mark Wade Daredevil. Make him more, like, swashbuckling and stuff. You know, a little fun, quippier, you know? It's Mark Wade's version of Daredevil is just as good in the comic books as the Frank Miller stuff, just from a totally different point of view. So do that for me. That'd be great. But I'm sure that Charlie Cox as, uh, as Matt Murdock is probably going to show up in Marvel's She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Which I like the fact that uh, it, we might get just as much uh, courtroom stuff as we do superhero stuff. And people were making fun of uh, the, pre the preview for this show because of the uh, effects. But listen, it's a television budget. The effects are not going to look as good as a movie. Sorry. Uh, I, I, th I think it's going to be fun. I like I like stuff like this. I like it when Marvel branches out and they're like, well, this is kind of a weird one. Let's Let's do this. Let's do a weird one. Anyways, the other big headline-grabbing show premiering in August is HBO's Game of Thrones prequel series House of the Dragon, which premieres just a couple days after She-Hulk on August 21st. And, I don't know, it looks like a Game of Thrones show. What can I say? I kind of feel the same way about it as I do the Lord of the Rings show that's dropping on Amazon in September. Just kind of like, eh, you know, yeah, it, it looks very expensive, and I'm not really sure if we needed it. Because uh, this is the seventh uh, attempt to get a Game of Thrones spinoff uh, series going, and it's only the second one that they rolled cameras on, and it's only the first one that actually is making it to air. That doesn't bode well. It kind of feels like they don't know what to do with Game of Thrones now that they've left the, uh, the actual text of the books, which is kind of what the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones felt like. So I don't have high hopes for it, but I'll give it a shot. I mean, it looks very expensive, as I said. Uh... And, you know, I think I'm more excited in the fantasy genre. I'm more excited for the Dungeons & Dragons movie coming out because that looks like they're doing something different. Like I keep saying, different flavors. Give me different flavors. Uh, so, yeah, the Dungeons & Dragons movie is a different flavor because it looks like it's kind of Guardians of the Galaxy in Dungeons & Dragons, which sounds like fun. House of the Dragon just seems like more Game of Thrones, which... You know, I got that out of my system, I think. And the Lord of the Rings show looks like more Lord of the Rings, which, look, I watched three Hobbit movies, and that kind of got it out of my system because 
it all looked very expensive, and I'm not really sure if we needed all of it. The Hobbit was a very short book. You didn't need three giant movies, and I don't think we need this uh, this you know series, this television series on Amazon, which costs like I don't know, probably a hundred million dollars an episode or something nuts like that to, you know, tell us what happened in this one paragraph of backstory that we heard in the appendices of Return of the King. Whatever. Other shows happening. Less uh, less splashy. Well, kind of splashy. Netflix is finally ready to spring that adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Sandman on us this Friday, August 5th. And, whew, doggy. That looks, uh... It looks exactly like every other Netflix adaptation of uh, the past few years of something that's either a cartoon or a comic. Uh, listen, I didn't I didn't see the Cowboy Bebop show, but it looked very pretty, it looked very expensive, and I'm not really sure why we needed it, because, you know, Cowboy Bebop's right there. And I felt the same way about, you know, they did uh, Death Note, they did... Uh, Bleach, I think they also did. They're adapting a lot of things. I'd still... I have cautious hope for the Last Airbender live-action series that's coming, but really, I'm just puzzled by a lot of the choices for these adaptations. Why do these particular things when there's no reason to adapt them other than we can? They, you know, it's that classic Jurassic Park thing. They, they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they never stopped to think if they should. And, and, and hey, another one. Another one that's coming. Uh, friends of the show will know that Chris Pranger loves him some One Piece. One Piece is a, uh, I'm told, terrific pirate anime. And the adaptation of that is coming to Netflix soon. And I'm not sure how that's going to work, because there are characters in that that are children. That's an anime that spans like a thousand episodes. Are they going to get through even the first arc of that show? Probably not, because... One, Netflix will cancel it way before they get to anything interesting. And two, all the kids will grow up before they can realize their characters' arcs. That's, it's just a really strange, I, it very much smacks of, we don't know this thing that we're adapting, we just know that we're gonna adapt it. Sandman looks like that to me. It looks like they have a vague idea of what it should look like, but they don't understand why it should look like that. Uh, they've got some good casting in it, uh, like, uh, Gwendolyn Christie's in it, I think she's playing, uh, Lucifer in it, and I like her, she, that's, that is good casting, if you've read Neil, Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, but, I don't know, the, the aesthetic of the show, based on that trailer they dropped, it just looks very flat, and, you know, it looks like a TV show, not, not a prestige cable show, but, like, it looks like a network television show based on Sandman, which... Woof, don't do that. That's a bad choice, but whatever, we'll see. I guarantee that, it, just like Cowboy Bebop, it's probably just going to disappear into the ether after a week. That's what happens with Netflix. They, they drop, like, a quarter of a billion dollars on something, and they get really good ratings on it for, like, three days, and then it disappears completely, and it's forgotten forever. Uh, yeah. Anyway, other shows to look at. Uh, just this week, uh, season two of Reservation Dogs drops on August 3rd. Uh, that's one of the best FX Hulu collaborations of the last year is Reservation Dogs. It's a really heartbreaking and hilarious show. Uh, all indigenous cast uh, takes place on a reservation. It's j just really, uh, you know, gut-wrenching, teen angst, and 
teen drama, but also really, really funny. Uh, catch up on season one of that if you haven't checked it out yet, and then dive into season two, because it's really good one. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Uh, meanwhile, FX has a new show that sounds potentially incredible. It's called The Patient. It's a thriller, or uh, like a drama and thriller, starring Steve Carell as a grieving, widowed uh, mental health provider who is captured by his new patient, who's a serial killer. And that character is played by Dom Hall Gleason. Uh, great actors right there, right? Uh, and he abducts his uh, doctor in an attempt to be cured. So it's kind of like, you know, tie, tie him up and, and all right, let's engage with therapy while you're my prisoner. Uh, that could be great. That could be uh, a re really extraordinary uh, piece of acting from both of those guys. And those are good characters for both of them to sink their teeth into. I'm, I'm glad that Steve Carell is coming back to TV. But anyways, uh, the other big show that I wanted to talk about, uh, Amazon Prime you know, before we, we get the Lord of the Rings of it all, they've been advertising the crap out of Lord of the Rings, but they also have a glitzy-looking adaptation of another movie that I love, A League of Their Own. And that's dropping uh, That's dropping on August 12th. Now, I haven't seen hide nor hair of this project since they announced it, but that's one of my top three baseball movies of all time. I watch it, like, every baseball season. I throw out my three baseball movies, which are... Uh, Bull Durham, The Sandlot, and A League of Their Own. Those are my three. Uh, but yeah, I haven't heard anything about this project since they announced it. Uh, I, it stars uh, Darcy Carden, Janet from The Good Place, among other things that she's been in. She's terrific. So yeah, I think that this is a, a cool idea. I think this is more fertile territory for a TV show, and it probably leans closer to what they do with like uh, The Marvelous Ms. Ms. Maisel rather than the Lord of the Rings show, which looks like it's edging closer to, like, The Boys or, you know, all of their other stuff that's incredibly expensive and needs to be advertised within an inch of its life. So I'm excited for A League of Their Own, and I'm cautiously optimistic for the Lord of the Rings show, and I might not even watch that very far. But A League of Their Own looks cool. Uh, get into that if you happen to be a baseball fan or a Darcy Carden fan. And then last show that I wanted to touch on... Uh, it's another show that hasn't really been talked about at all since it was announced, which is on Disney+. Plus. And they're dropping another Star Wars series, which is Andor, uh, starring Diego Luna as his Rogue One character, Cassian Andor. And if you remember from that movie, he, the dude is a spy. So I'm really, really hoping. I have high hopes for... I mean, I have high hopes for everything when Star Wars is attached to it, but if this show possibly lives up to the potential of its premise, it could be a real must-see. I would love it if this was a spy thriller rather than an action-adventure show. I'm sure that we'll have plenty of laser, you know, firefights, uh, you know, space battles maybe, you know, stormtroopers getting getting punched and stuff like that. Sure, do all of that stuff. You can't do Star Wars without that stuff. But please, for the love of God, give me the Americans in Star Wars. That's what I want. Give me like a Three Days of the Condor or... Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in Star Wars. That's the flavor I'm looking for here. I, if if you're going to flood the market with a bunch of Star Wars projects, Disney, please make them all different things. Make them... I mean, that's what I wanted out of the Book of Boba Fett. I wanted a crime 
saga. You know, I wanted like uh, the Sopranos in in the cantina on Tatooine. Didn't really get that because they were afraid that it might stray too far from the Star Wars tone and, and formula. Stray from it. Give me a horror story in Star Wars. Give me a romance story in Star Wars. I don't care. Give me as much as much different texture as you possibly can because that's the point of owning something like this that you can attach things to. It's it's better for Marvel too. Ms. Marvel is good because it's a kids like teenage, you know, kids show. That's different from, you know, Hawkeye which is almost like a a Shane Black, you know, buddy cop show almost so give me more for give me more flavors give me a new recipe and that's kind of what this uh this version of media sandwich has been uh is kind of my new recipe for what the podcast could be just skimming headlines hanging out for a little bit giving you a little bit of commentary on them and that's all the headlines i got that's all the news that's fit to podcast about folks thanks so much for listening uh if you have thoughts or opinions on any of this chuffa that i talked about or on the new format that I'm trying out, let me know in the comments. Uh, you can let us know on our Twitter, at media underscore sandwich. Or uh, you can check us out on facebook.com slash media sandwich show. You can check out some of the other content available at www.media-sandwich.com. And I've got movie reviews, TV reviews, comic book picks of the week, uh, some upcoming video content via our YouTube channel, uh, if you're interested in that. And if you're in the mood to just, like, goof off with me on Twitter, I'm at Kyle Martinak. I'm on a Letterboxd, at Kyle Martinak. You can check me out there, see if you agree, disagree, be nice either way. You know, thanks, I appreciate that. But, uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out with me for a little bit. Uh, I'm gonna go get a sandwich. Thank you.